want to welcome you. We're in uh, week seven now of our series called The Church. We're spending some time in Ephesians, and we're asking and trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian in a part of this thing called the church? And I, I mentioned this uh, on the front end of this series in the series intro. I'll just repeat it here. But, um, you know, as much as we don't like to be placed in the categories, I, I think it's safe to say everybody who, who tunes into this series falls neatly into one of three categories. Uh, you either know that you are not a Christian, you think you might be a Christian, or you're positive that you are a Christian. And the good news is that this series is going to be valuable for you, regardless of where you're coming from. Because let's say on the one hand, um, you, you know that you're not a Christian. You know, you're, you're, you're skeptical about this. You're not sure that you believe this. Maybe you've openly rejected this. Uh, if that's where you're coming from, this series is going to be a great tool for helping you make sure that you understand exactly what it is that you've rejected. Meaning, there's a chance that maybe the Christianity that you don't want to give your life to is not the Christianity that Jesus actually created. Uh, so it'll be valuable for you. Number two, maybe you're listening to this and, and you, know, you, you might be a Christian, but you're not really sure. Maybe there was a time in your life years ago when you had some kind of experience and it led to, you know, some momentary change, but you kind of fell away for a while and you've wondered, was that just emotional? Was that just psychological? Or was there something more to that? Again, this series is going to be a great tool for helping you understand whether or not you're really in the faith and really in Christ, the way Paul says a believer is in Christ. Uh, But thirdly, lastly, and I'm going to go ahead and say this one is probably most common for us. Maybe you're listening to this and you know that you're a Christian. You don't really have any serious doubts about this. Then this series is going to be an incredibly valuable, and I'll just tell you personally, an incredibly convicting tool for helping you see whether or not you're living in line with what the Bible says is, is most true about you at this very moment. So with that, we're going to get into our um, text this morning. It's a larger passage. We're going to be spending some time in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I'll, I'll read through all of that on the front end. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner... For the Lord urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of of the spirit with the peace that binds us. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in all. Now, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift, for it says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity, he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean, except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints and the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. This is God's word. We could uh, spend a couple months in that passage. There's a whole lot of things going on there. But given that this series is called The Church, and it's about asking this question, what does it really mean to be a part of the church? I just want to take three themes out of this passage. And I want to talk about, first off, the paradox that the church is, because the church is a paradox It's designed by God to be a paradox. It can only do what it's called uniquely to do when it lives in the reality of that paradox. Number two, I want to talk about the problem that Paul says the church has. It might surprise you what this passage of Scripture says is the number one most pressing problem that we have. Uh, And, you know, full disclosure, let's just set expectations. You're probably not going to be super happy with me during that particular move. But then we'll get to the end and we'll talk about the prescription the church needs, which is really difficult and terrifying. You'll be even less happy with me by the time the sermon concludes. But then we have a picnic and there's a lot of chicken, all right? So let's let that be the outline of today. And if nobody sits with me, I won't take it personally. Prophet's not without honor except in his own town, all right? So we're going to talk about the paradox that the church is, 
Number two, the problem that the church has. Number three, the prescription that the church needs. Also, side note, I didn't mention this to the 9 a.m., but if you're paying attention, last week, David Brower alliterated his teaching with peas. I want to tell you, that's six peas in a row if you count this Sunday. Six points starting with, you know how hard that is? You don't even care. All right, let's begin. Uh, number one, the paradox that the church is. All right, in this, in this section... Uh, among other things, what Paul's doing is he's laying out how paradoxical the church is because his point is that inside the community of Jesus' followers that we call the church, there are two seemingly incompatible things that are meant to be held together that should not go together. And, and what those are, I'll, I'll, I'll say it on the front end and then we'll, we'll walk through it. The church is designed by God. It, it is called to be known for, on the one hand, a unity despite all of our diversity, while at the same time being known for a radical individual diversity, member to member, despite all of our unity. And so let's walk through both halves of that. Paul, actually, in the first six verses, what he's focusing on is our unity. Uh, you, you may have noticed in verses four to six alone, he uses the word one no less than seven times. Uh, he says that uh, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. What Paul is saying there fundamentally uh, is that everybody's salvation the same. Everybody's salvation is the same because everybody who becomes a Christian becomes a Christian in exactly the same way. There's only one way into a relationship with God. That way is a person. His name is Jesus. So all the other differences aside, whatever happened in your life to you or whatever you did to other people before you came to the one way Jesus Christ, for all intents and purposes. Uh, our salvation is fundamentally the same inside the family of God known as the church. And so what Paul is saying to the Ephesians here is, his sal- he's saying my salvation is basically the same as yours. It's not more or less miraculous. It's not more or less powerful. It's not more or less life-changing. So consider for a moment what that would have meant to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul obviously is, he's famous for a number of things, but one of them, I, I think it's safe to say Paul had the most spectacular conversion story in the Bible. You know, he's, he's confronted personally by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He's knocked on his back. He's blinded. And then when those scales fall off his eyes, Paul is commissioned by Jesus Christ to be this empire-transforming church planter that I think you, you have a strong case that Paul went on to be one of the greatest, most actually the greatest, the most influential mind in human history, second only to Jesus Christ. Because here we are 2,000 years later, and, and billions of people are still studying what Paul had to say, Paul through whom God gave us 13 books in the New Testament. That is a, I don't know anybody that, that has a claim to influence, influence over human thought like, like Paul does. And yet what he's saying here is, hey, I, fundamentally, there's no difference between you and I. There's a salvation that binds us that's meant to create a unity in us that goes far deeper than any, any differences, you know, at the surface of our lives. So, so to kind of explain how this works... I came across this story a couple of weeks ago. I think this is really interesting. It's a true story about a guy who moved years ago. He moved from Bosnia to the United States. If you know anything about Bosnia, it's been you know, ravaged and war-torn, and the people that have lived there have lived through a great deal together, more than a lot of us probably can imagine. And when he was in the States, you know, he, was, he was reflecting on the culture of the United States. He says one of the first things that stood out the most to him is how sharply Americans tend to divide along political party lines which is something that's, you know, unique to Americans. And that was years ago. I'm sure you would probably agree. That's only become more pronounced now. And so he was just, he was pointing out how, man, here it seems like Democrats really hate Republicans and Republicans really hate Democrats. But then he said something that really interests me. And he wasn't a believer. But he said, he said, it's funny, if I meet a Bosnian in the United States and they happen to vote Republican. He, he said he happened to vote Democrat. He said, if I meet a Bosnian and we don't agree politically, he said, I don't care about that at all. We're one. And he was asked, why is that? Why don't political differences mean anything to you? And this is exactly what he said. Because we've been through life and death together. So, so just take that idea. What, what that's highlighting, I think we all know this, is that when, when, when individuals, when, when two people that might not have anything else in common, when they go through a profoundly life-altering experience together, it creates a bond in them that is very difficult, if not impossible, to undo. He said, we've been through life and death together as Bosnians. I don't care whatever differences we have. We have that, and that binds us forever. What the Word of God is saying is that followers of Jesus have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life together. 
Paul's point in these opening six verses is that what you, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you and every other follower of Jesus across time and space has in common is you have been through the most profoundly life-altering experience together because you were brought from spiritual death to being made alive spiritually in Christ. And that should cause a bond between you and every other follower of Jesus that actually not only should it do this, but it does do this, whether we act like it or not, it creates a bond that absolutely nothing can sever. it's It's a wild thing to think about. If you're in Christ right now, This room full of people who are in Christ, you're spending eternity in the same place. You have relationships that have begun now that extend limitlessly. Pretty wild. There's the unity. And if that's all Paul said, then at least this is where my mind would go. I I would have this tendency to think, okay, so we're we're supposed to be unified. We have these profound life-altering experiences in common. So maybe we're supposed to all look the same. Maybe the unity is really uniformity, and Christianity is supposed to basically manifest itself in the same way in every follower of Jesus' life. Uh, almost anticipating that, look where Paul goes next. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 to you. It says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift, for it says, and Paul quotes a psalm here that he's kind of reading retroactively into Jesus. He says, When he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity, he gave gifts to people. So I just learned this this week, but it was a, it was a common ancient practice for kings in the ancient world when there was a, a, a force that threatened their people, the king would lead out the armies out of the city to meet that force head on. And if the king successfully conquered that threatening force, then when he returned to the city, he would ascend back to his throne, and in ascending back to his throne, he would give the spoils of war out to his people. And what Paul is saying is that, that Jesus is the, the ultimate king who has ultimately done that for everyone who calls on his name. That, that Jesus, is basically the essence of the gospel, is that Jesus left his heavenly city. You know, Paul, the way that Paul uh, um, describes this is he descended to the lower parts of the earth. That's, that's here. Jesus left his heavenly city to come down here to fight and overthrow the forces and the powers that we have no power against in our own strength. That's namely our, our sin and, and the grave itself. And in conquering those enemies for us, Jesus has ascended back into heaven He's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what Paul is saying here is that when you give your life to Jesus, the same thing happens that ancient kings did. Jesus has given every one of his followers a spiritual gift. Now, one of these days, I'm going to do a series on spiritual gifts and dedicate all the time to that topic that it deserves. I don't have the time to do that now. So the only thing that I want to draw your attention to here is that this is teaching. When you give your life to Jesus, a unique gift is given to you by Jesus. And this is basically Paul building off of this idea that he, he started back in chapter 2, verse 10, where he says that a, a Christian is someone who, the moment you give your life to Jesus, a Christian is someone who is God's workmanship or God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So, so basically, right after Paul is talking about this radical unity that believers are called to have, what he, what he also says is that it's, it's not only will there be differences, but there needs to be differences. There needs to be a unique individuality among each Christian because when you give your life to Jesus, you are given a, gift in the, a gifting that's given only to you, meaning there are interests, desires, passions that you've get, been given by God that he didn't give to everybody else. There are, are giftings, there are skills, there are affinities given to you by God that he did not give to every other part of his body, which means that there are people that only you can reach, there are hands that only you can hold, there are wounds that only you can heal. And so this, this paradox that Paul's walking us through, and he really elaborates on this more throughout the end of this section, I just don't want to you know, spend too much time here, is that on the one hand, the church is meant to be known for this deep unity, these, these, these inexplicably strong bonds that hold us together, but at the same time, it's a unity that never compromises our own individuality that there should be a uniqueness, a unique expression, a unique gifting, a unique calling on each individual part. We're not trying to duplicate each other, step on each other's toes. So let's ask the question, what image does that bring to mind, this idea of all of these different parts that are bound together in an organic way by something incredibly strong, and yet our uniqueness is never compromised. It's actually necessary because we all need to play a different part in order to accomplish the overall objective. The image is that of a body, which is exactly what Paul says the community of Jesus followers is called to be here. We are the body, or literally the embodiment 
of Christ. Now, there's all kinds of implications we could pull about this, but let me, th- let me offer to you what I think is the most important one, giving, given this cultural moment. You hear me say all the time, you know, sociologists point out we're the most individualistic society really in the history of the world. Here's what this image of the body of Christ means for us. It means, especially as people in the modern world, we need to be aware of and we need to strongly resist the tendency we all have to try to take our Christianity and reduce it to just an individual, personal, and private thing. Meaning, uh, God, did, God does save us so that in an individual way, he can forgive your sins and my sins so that he can free us from guilt and shame, so that he can give us peace that surpasses all understandings, that we might face our trials and tribulations and death itself in a way that honors him. And, and of course, it's an it's a amazing thing that we got our ticket punched to heaven. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can't erase that once it's been written. All that's incredible. But what Ephesians as a, as a whole is telling you and I is that the ultimate reason that God has done this, the ultimate reason that he does anything that he does in our lives, is that so that we together might become this body this community that only together astonishes the world. What I'm about to tell you, I'll, I'll be perfectly candid. I, I taught through Ephesians six, I think it was six years ago, 2016. What I'm about to tell you meant nothing to me then. It is so moving to me now. And may, maybe it's me or, or, or may, maybe it's all of us. I'll just offer this to you. But this is something that David said last week. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 says that God's plan. This isn't God's uh, uh, plan A didn't work out. Um, I got something in the chamber. Don't worry. That's not how he operates. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says that God's plan, knowing that we would choose to be our own masters, our own gods, our own saviors, would make a mess of reality, and God had already determined that he was going to fix it. God's plan A is that his manifold wisdom would be put on display through the church. I, don't, I can't really explain why. That means more to me now than it ever has at any point in my life. What that means, this is, this is both convicting, but it's also really inspiring to me. What that means is that when the world at large, outside the church, looks at the church, and let me just make this as personal as it needs to be for us. A couple of years ago, the C.S. Lewis Institute did a survey of Anne Arundel County, came up with a, with a number, 85% of Anne Arundel County is not related or affiliated with any kind of church, and so in all, for all intents and purposes, doesn't have a relationship with God. 85% of Anne Arundel County. What this is teaching is that when that 85% looks at Severn Covenant Church, looks at us as a community, God's desire is that the first thought that would come to their mind when they see us together is, look how wise it is when you give your life to God. Look how much better it is when people just hand over control of their lives to God. Look at the way relationships are healed inside the church, the way that people who who outside the four walls could never get along, couldn't even sit in the same building. Look at how inside the church they have this inexplicably deep bond. It's deeper than blood. It's deeper than family. And yet despite how tightly bonded they are to each other, There's a uniqueness, there's an individuality, there's a creativity, there's a unique expression in every individual Christian, and yet somehow, despite all that diversity, they have found a way. They're the one group of people who's found a way to come together for a purpose greater than themselves, and they unite as they advance the power and presence of Jesus Christ into the world. How's that for an ideal? I was was telling the 9 a.m., being 35 years old, now that I have everything figured out at 35 years old. One of the things that I'm more sure of than I ever have been, jokes aside, this didn't mean anything to me before. A lot of things didn't mean, nothing meant anything to me before today is what I'm trying to, at 35 years old, one thing that's really impressed on me is how badly human beings need a purpose. And I think in my 20s, I was just too distracted to notice that with whatever. But being 35 years old recently, that's really set in, that we need a, you need a purpose. It's designed by God. You know, when Genesis says we're created in the image of God, well, what we know about God for those first two chapters in Genesis is God's a God who creates. You and I need to create. We need a sense of purpose. We need a feeling like what we're doing with the time that we've been given actually matters. We wither without that, same as we do without food, water, you know, rest, oxygen, all that kind of stuff. We need it. And I just want to offer you, this is the greatest purpose in the universe. 
We need to be a part of something that lasts. Nobody wants to know that what they're doing is going to die with them. Well, well, when you're a part of the church, you're a part of something that Jesus Christ himself said. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against that. This will extend into eternity. This is the ultimately meaningful thing. That's something that I want to spend my life being a part of. But there's a problem that keeps us from being this and doing this. And with that, we'll get to our next idea According to Ephesians 4, chapter one, uh, verses 1 through 16, let's look at number two, the problem that the church has. What is the problem that we have, church? I'm glad you asked. As succinctly as I can say it, here's the problem that the church has. We are immature, spiritual babies. Now, I want to pause here. I think very highly of you all, <laughs> but Paul said that. Verses 13 and 14. Here's the goal. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, here it is, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Paul says the goal for us is to become mature and no longer be spiritual little children, which by implication means that at present, that's exactly what we are. We are immature spiritual babies. Pause. Over the last two years, I heard a lot, which is, makes sense because I'm a pastor, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that a lot of you have, especially if you are foolish enough to have an app called Twitter like me. A lot of people, specifically Christians, have speculated a lot about the problem the church has. You know, the real problem that the church is up against, the real thing that's keeping us from this ideal in Scripture, from advancing the power and presence of Jesus into the world, all that kind of stuff. And I'll just speak personally from what I've heard, but maybe you've heard the same thing. Almost every time I hear somebody talk about the problem the church has, it's always outside of us. It's always out there in that big, bad world. It's that, it's that dark and scary culture it's these, you know, these elites, these conspiracies, these powerful figures, these whatever, and we just need to you know, be aware of that and stand up against that and, and fight for our this and that, and, and let me just take all that and weigh it against what I see here. Just, just consider this for a moment. Paul wrote Ephesians from a jail cell. He was in that jail cell for one reason. He was a Christian, and he would not be quiet about it. That's the only reason. He's very candid about that in chapters 3 and 4. He is a prisoner for Jesus. History tells us Paul would live to escape that imprisonment, only to later in his life be imprisoned again and murdered in custody for his faith in Jesus. History also tells us, not long after the writing of the letter known as Ephesians, a persecution so severe would break out against Christians that the Roman Empire was, was creatively thinking of the most horrible ways to torture and murder them. They were being covered in pitch and burned alive to light the emperor's garden. They were being flayed alive, crucified, torn apart by wild animals. My point is, historically speaking, this right here is one of the worst times imaginable to be a Christian. In the midst of all that, in the, in the midst of a jail cell chained to a Roman soldier that his faith got him imprisoned for, Paul says, the biggest problem the church is facing has nothing to do with what's outside of us and everything to do with what's inside of us. A couple of weeks ago now, I, I, I uh, quoted from a book I, 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 um, I read this summer. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. You may remember me talking about that. I recommended that to a number of you. I came across a quote in that book. As soon as I read this, it really stuck with me. Listen to this. It says, I was a Christian for 22 years, but instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, I was a one-year-old Christian 22 times. Ah. <laughs> that guy saved 22 years only to realize that he wasn't a 22-year-old Christian. He was just a one-year-old Christian 22 times over. According to Paul, that is the single biggest problem the church has. That is the single greatest hindrance to us being and doing what God has called us to be and do. Here, here's the problem with being born again. It's a lot like when you're born the first time. And when you're born the first time, Nobody's born an adult. Nobody's born a grown-up. It doesn't work that way. And when you're born again, it's no different. You're born a little baby. And what that quote proves is that it's, it is possible to never grow up. It's possible to be saved and just never grow up. 
And to me, the first step in growing up spiritually is realizing what the guy that offered that quote in that book had to realize, which is that we have some growing up to do. So let's ask the question, how do you know if you're a spiritual baby? Let me give you three symptoms of spiritual babyhood, all right? All based on this passage. First first one, and this is kind of low-hanging fruit, self-centeredness. I want to be real clear before I get into this. I am pro-baby. I am so pro-baby. If I ever run for office, my whole platform will be, this guy's pro-baby. If anyone says I'm anti-baby, don't you believe him. However, it's time to tell the truth about babies. Babies are self-centered. Got an amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That eased the tension. I I thought somebody was going to tear me off the stage. If babies were not as cute as they were, any other creature that self-centered, they'd have gone extinct. (laughs) Babies are born only thinking about their needs and their wants and their desires and, and how comfortable they are and what they think they need and what they want. And I'll just tell you, I got four kids I have never seen a baby check in with one of their parents to see how their day is going before letting their parents know what they need. Paul would say that is the essence of spiritual immaturity, that a spiritually immature person is just a person that's completely sunk in on themselves. A spiritually immature person is always in the mode of thinking about how do other people view me? How do other people think about me? How are other people treating me? So spiritual babies are always offended they're always, they always have their feelings hurt because they're always convinced I'm not being treated as well as I should be treated. And with that, they're very insecure. They can't take criticism. They can't admit when they're wrong. C.S. Lewis has this great quote about humility. He says, humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's just about thinking of yourself less. It's just about, it's, it's self-forgetfulness. It's just getting over yourself entirely. Spiritual babies can't do that. They're obsessed with themselves. Number one, self-centeredness. Number two, the number two symptom of spiritual immaturity is a lack of stability. You see this in verse 14 where Paul says, we'll no longer be little children. Listen to the first way he describes them. He says, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind. Now, obviously, this makes perfect sense if you know Paul's background. Paul is is bringing to mind the image of a boat, which Paul was no stranger to shipwrecks. And so think about what he's saying here. Especially in Paul's day, uh, when, when... There's no such thing as a motorized boat. When you put a boat in the water, it is essentially, I mean, you can row and things like that, but especially in Paul's day, when you put a boat in the water, it's essentially at the mercy of the conditions around it. Meaning, it can go straight if wind is filling its sails, but it's, if, if the wind stops, it stops, and if the storms start beating on it, it's, it's basically going to be driven wherever that storm drives it. Paul, Paul is basically saying that's exactly what a spiritual baby's like. So what does that mean? Here's an example of this. Um, something you've, you've probably heard of, or maybe there was a period in your time like that, period of time in your life like this. A lot of times you'll see somebody that for a, for a period of time, and it can last a little while, they are what we would say in the 90s is on fire for God. Man, they're so on fire. For, they must have gone to acquire the fire. They're so on fire for God. It's so exciting. And they're going to church, and they got both hands raised and tears rolling down their cheeks, and they're praying, and they're serving, and they're giving, and they're loving, and they're leading, and all that kind of stuff. And they exude this passion. And then a little bit of time goes by, and, and, and one of three things happens. Number one, they find out that it's not always fun to follow Jesus. You don't always wake up with butterflies in your stomach. Uh, number two, maybe it starts to cost them to follow Jesus. Maybe it costs them some social capital. Maybe it costs them a relationship. Maybe it costs them you know, financially, who knows? Cost them in all kinds of ways. Or number three, maybe they experienced some legitimate suffering. And they were thinking, man, I I gave my life to God. Isn't he supposed to give me the life that I wanted? This isn't what I signed up for, and they're gone. And so what happens is when their good feelings go away, so does their commitment. What Paul would say based on this is that's a spiritual baby because like a boat in the water with no motor, they had no power within themselves to maintain a steady course when it was no longer easy to do so. Right, so, so growing up spiritually, the, the opposite of that then means uh, that you're, a, you're able to do what God calls you to do even when it stops being fun. Eugene Peterson, famous theologian, he talks, I love this phrase, he talks about long obedience in the same direction. That's what a spiritually mature person is capable of. You know how to show up. You know how to attend to worship. You know how to choose to praise. 
you know how to, to spend quiet time in God with prayer, even if you're not weeping at, you know, the presence of God is so manifest. It's, you know how to give. You know how to open up your life to others. You know how to serve even when you're not getting anything out of it because that's the course that you've set for your life. That's spiritual maturity. Thirdly, and, and the last symptom we'll talk about here, uh, is, is that Paul says that babies, spiritual babies, also they have a lack of discernment. And, and the way you can see that is, uh, is look, at what, look at the reason Paul says they're, they're, they're blown and tossed by the wind. He says, he says they're tossed by the waves and they're blown around. Here's, here's what they're blown around by. By every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. That's basically what Paul is saying is you know a spiritual baby when you see one because they just don't have discernment. They, they lack discernment. All right, a great example of this uh, comes from an, an interaction I just had with my beloved three-year-old son, Hayes. I think, if memory serves, this is the first sermon analogy dedicated to Hayes, very big day for him. I told him this week, I said, Hayes, you're going to be famous, buddy. You're going live. And he said, what does that mean? Because he's three years old. Why would he know what that means? So whatever, Hayes, this one's for you, buddy. Uh, recently, I, I, I uh, came across a YouTube video very much into, I think it's called YPB Youngbloods. It's by this Australian guy who was born, like it seems a lot of Australians, without any fear whatsoever. It is incredible what this guy's willing to do. So he films himself on these solo survival adventures. Sometimes he'll go to like a desert island for a week with like a nail clipper and he's got to kill a rock lobster, all this crazy stuff. And he's always coming across these insane exotic creatures. So uh, I just saw an episode the other day where he came across the, the blue-ringed octopus, which is just the, one of the most fascinating creatures imaginable for me, and I'll, I'll let you into it. Congratulations. Welcome to your marine biology lesson. Blue-ringed octopus, full-grown, will fit it neatly into the palm of your hand, but it produces a toxin that is so potent um, that there is no... It, 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 one full-grown octopus can kill 26 adults, and there is absolutely no cure for it. The only way to survive the sting or the bite of this octopus is if you are intubated and put on a ventilator before you stop breathing. And they're so small that people have frequently reported getting bit without even knowing it. And so this guy found one and he started scratching its head. Complete lunatic. So after I saw this video, I did what any good father would do, and I alerted my sons of the presence of the blue octopus in the world that they you know, growing up in, because I don't know what it's going to be like in 20 years. Who knows where these things are going to go? My son's got to know. So I was telling Everett and Hayes, my three-year-old, about this. And the response I got from Hayes, I think, is kind of exactly what Paul wanted to bring to our mind with this idea of lack of discernment. Because as I was telling Hayes how easy this octopus could kill him, along with 25 other adults, he interrupted me. Before I was even finished explaining the dangers thereof, he interrupted me and goes, I could kill it. I've thought a lot about this. I'm not sure that Hayes knows what an octopus is. Now think about the significance of that. I don't think he knows that generally speaking they're confined to the water. What I'm telling you is, for all Hayes knows, these things are hanging out in our backyard. And they could be as big as a pit bull or a car. He has no idea. He's just with blind confidence sure he could drop that thing if they ever cross paths. And so I just stared at him for a minute stunned, as I often am by Hayes, and he goes on to tell me unprompted, just off the top of his head, he says he's got this green sword that he keeps in the basement at his mom, mom, and pop's house, and that would be the murder weapon. And I thought, if I could bottle that confidence, we'd have some money at this church because people would pay good money to have that kind of confidence that Hayes has. My point is, uh, to me, that's a perfect example of what, what Paul says is a hallmark of a spiritual child because a spiritual child is somebody who, like a physical child, lacks discernment. And that lack of discernment can show up in one of two ways. And here's why I get a little bit more serious and just ask you to take a self-inventory here. On the one hand, a spiritual lack of discernment can manifest just the way that it did in Hayes' life, where, where on the one hand, you grossly overestimate your own abilities and underestimate the power of the things you're up against, whether that's your enemy trials and tribulations you're likely to experience in this life or just sin in your own heart. So one thing that, that spiritual babies are known for because of their lack of discernment is they frequently succumb to temptation that they should have never been fighting in the first place. The Bible doesn't say fight against temptation. It says flee temptation. You're not strong enough to fight against temptation. Let Jesus handle that for you. Spiritual babies don't understand that. So they frequently 
end up in situations they should have never been in, you know, doing things they swore they would never do, always surprised by their own weakness and failures. They, they frequently take on too much. They don't know when to ask for help, and they make generally unwise decisions that's all owed to this overestimation of themselves and an underestimation of what they're, they're going to experience in this life. The other way that a lack of discernment can manifest itself is in exactly the opposite way where instead of overestimating, they actually underestimate what has happened to them as a child of God. They underestimate what it means to be filled with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And with that, they overestimate the things that they experience in this life. And so the way that that manifests itself is actually exactly the opposite, but it's got the same root cause, that that kind of lack of discernment translates to a Christian who walks through life always defeated, always discouraged, Super pessimistic, super negative, very cynical, kind of the sky is falling, without a hint of the life, of the strength, of the joy, of the vigor that, that is available to you and God desires you to have according to his word. And the reason for that is because they've underestimated exactly what happened to them the moment they were saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, and they've overestimated the trials and the tribulations of this life. Either way, it's a lack of discernment. So those are three signs. You have... Self-centeredness, you have lack of stability, you have uh, lack of discernment. But put positively, what this means is the way that that you know you're growing in maturity spiritually is, number one, uh, you're you're not as self-centered, meaning uh, you're not constantly obsessing about your image and how other people see you and treat you and think of you. You're able to take criticism. You're able to admit when you're wrong. You're even able to laugh at yourself. Secondly, spiritual maturity means you're becoming a person of stability. It means that, that when you set a course that you're going to follow Jesus, you're able to do that even if it doesn't feel good. You know how to move forward even when the wind's not at your back and even when the storms of life are, 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 are beating your boat. And then thirdly, lastly, spiritual maturity means you're a person of discernment, which means you have built your life on the foundation of what God has said in his word. That has become the foundation of truth in your life. So you know what God says is true about you. You know what God says is true about the life you're likely to experience as you follow Jesus. And so you're able to move out into the world with a confidence, a peace, a poise, and a wisdom about you. Now, just in case you're feeling terrible about yourself, let me point one more thing out before we move forward. Paul does not say your problem is that you're an immature child. He says it's our problem. You catch that? He says, the goal is that we might become mature so that we would no longer be children. That's an apostle through whom God gave us 13 books of the New Testament saying, you know what? I have a lot of growing up to do myself. It's an incredibly encouraging thing to me. And so before we get get onto the solution to this, let me just point out two really important implications that I really believe will make your and my life a lot easier if we can hang on to these two things. In light of what we just went through... Here's two implications. Number one, we should never be surprised at the immaturity we see in other believers. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, I can't believe that. You've got to pick your jaw up off the floor. Given what the Bible says is true about us, that shouldn't surprise us because Christians aren't saved by cleaning their life up and maturing and then coming to Jesus. They are saved when they realize I'm a mess, I'm really immature, and I need Jesus. And so, I, actually, I'll put it this way. If a church is doing what God desires the church to do, which is reach lost people, there should be a constant tension of spiritual immaturity in the church that, in a weird way, we should almost be a little bit encouraged by. Secondly, however, with that, and as an important counterbalance to that, while we should not be surprised at the immaturity in other believers, we should never be tolerant of it in ourselves. Because Paul says that is the biggest thing keeping the church from being and doing what the church is called to do and be. The biggest obstacle keeping the church from being what God desires us to be is the immaturity of my own heart. That's what every believer has to be able to say. So here's the million-dollar question. What do you do about it? And that brings us to our third and last idea. Number three, let's talk about the prescription that the church needs. But verse 15 now, it says, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. That verse, in a nutshell, is the secret sauce of the church. And to me, I'm just going to let you in on my personal life here, that resolves or helps explain a tension that I've been feeling all through Ephesians. All right? I don't know where you're coming from or if you've tuned into this series, but we've been here for seven weeks now, and I'll tell you, This book, in in a number of ways, has been more unsettling than any other sermon series I've taught through 
Because if you've been here, you know every week we've been talking about all these different facets of Christianity. We've talked about what Christians have. Every spiritual blessing is already ours. What Christians know, God's going to heal the entire universe one day through Jesus. And that healing power has broken into our lives now. He talks about how our relationship with God's been transformed, how our relationship with ourselves is transformed in God, and how our relationship with other followers of Jesus is transformed. And I'm not being coy here, but let me be honest. The tension I felt as we've zoomed out from that every week is, why don't we look like this? Has anybody else thought that? Why, why isn't this what the church is known? Why isn't this what I'm known for? When you look at everything the Bible says is true about believers and the way that's supposed to manifest itself, the hardest thing for me to reconcile every week in Ephesians is, why isn't that us? Why isn't that me? And the answer is because we don't do what Paul says we have to do here. Listen, the specific practice and the key to growing and maturity through community is right here in verse 15, without which you will never become the person that God desires you to be, that you otherwise could be. It's right here on the front end of verse 15. I don't know how to tee this up any more than I have. Speaking the truth in love. Here's what this means. You and I should read the Bible and pray privately. We should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together in corporate worship. We should practice all the spiritual disciplines. However, what, what Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is teaching us is that you and I will not grow unless we are plunged into a community that is always speaking the truth in love to one another. So what does that mean? Speaking the truth in love means absolute honesty. We're not going to come at it sideways. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're going to be clear because clear is kind. Absolute honesty about the things in your life that, that need to change that comes from a love that is so genuine and so palpable that you're able to receive it. I'll just phrase this as strongly as I can. If you do not have people in your life that are doing that for you right now, and you don't have people in your life that you're doing that for right now, then according to this, you will never be what you could otherwise be, period. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you, But if you think through this for any length of time, lived experience would certainly prove this, that the problem here is no human being is capable of keeping those two things together. Meaning meaning no human being, every one of us because of our temperament, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, upbringing, whatever it is, every one of us tends to be a person who emphasizes the truth at the cost of love or emphasizes love at the cost of the truth. None of us perfectly keep this balance together. And the reason for that is, let's just call it what it is, our own selfishness. So let me walk through this real quickly because we're, we're, we're moving toward the end here. Why is it, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this, why is it, for those of us that seem to be really good at loving, why is it that we fail to tell the truth? Even when we, we really feel strongly that we know what that person needs to hear. Here's what we tell ourselves. Well, I don't tell them the truth because I don't want to hurt them. You know, it's, it's because of how it would make them feel. When the truth is, no, you don't tell them the truth because of how to make you feel. We're afraid that telling the truth is going to anger them, they're going to blow up and hurt us, or it's going to crush them and we're going to feel so guilty and so terrible. And so it's actually a self-preservation thing. It's a deeply self-centered thing to withhold the truth from somebody. That's the real reason. Or let's go to the opposite side of that coin. Why is it that some of us have no problem speaking the truth in other people's lives, but we're known for not doing it in love? Why are we so abrasive? Why are we so unkind? Why are we so pointed? Why are we so careless with our words? And again, it boils down to motivation. It's because we're not really interested in that person's development. We're not really purely interested in seeing the image of Christ formed in the person across the table from us. We just want to prove to them that we're smarter than them, that we have a higher perspective than them. We, we love feeling superior to them. And so we put them in their place. It makes us feel like we're in control. Either way, that's coming from a deeply self-centered place, and it never works. You, you know from lived experience, when people speak to you like that or you speak to others like that, it's not loving, and so it's not received. It usually has the opposite of the intended effect. So here's the dilemma that we're left with if you think through this command for any length of time. We can't become the people God calls us to be without this perfect balance of truth and love, yet we're incapable of giving it to each other. 
It's not just an, it's not an issue of maybe if I craft my statements more clearly, it's an issue that goes much deeper than that. It sinks to the level of the human heart. And this is a theme that Jesus Christ very famously spoke to. You probably heard this verse before. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit. Why are we talking about fruit trees in the middle of a section about words? With what Jesus says next, he makes it very clear. He's not talking about fruit trees at all. Verse 34, brood of vipers, Jesus said, how can you speak good things when you are evil? Here it is. If this doesn't nail you to the, to the carpet, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. The version I memorized, I came up, memorized this in. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. So what Jesus is saying there is that our speech is not our issue. It just reveals how deep our issues go. And the reason that our words are broken is because our hearts are broken. And so therefore, what Jesus is teaching is the only, the only thing that can change our words is a change in our heart because our speech is nothing more than an overflow that reveals what's going on in us. The only solution to this, according to the Bible, the only thing that can remedy this, you and I need by design what you could call a healing word from outside of us that will transform our hearts from the outside in so that our speech can be transformed from the inside out. And with that concept in mind, can I ask you to consider how brilliant it is, how brilliant it is, that of all the ways that this book could refer to Jesus, it specifically calls him the Word made flesh. As the Bible's way of saying that Jesus is the ultimate communication of everything you and I need to know about God. And in John's Gospel account, chapter 1, verse 14, we're told he is exactly the Word that Paul says we need because he's a Word that was both full of grace and full of truth at the same time. He's not half and half. He is the full measure of both. And on the cross, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but on the cross, what we're seeing is the, the, the ultimate and the perfect display of what it means for someone to speak the truth to you in love. Because on the cross, what Jesus is saying to you personally, what he's doing is he is confronting you with the most painful truth imaginable. When Jesus hangs on the cross for us, even 2,000 years later, when we go back to that, what Jesus is saying to you on the cross is what the human heart secretly knows and most deeply fears, which is that you are such a failure. You are, you are so flawed. You have made such a mess of your life. You are so broken. You are so sinful that it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to save you. Do you realize how much more painful of a truth Jesus confronts you and I with than the founder of any other major belief system. What Jesus is saying on the cross is it wouldn't do you any good to throw you the eightfold path. It wouldn't do you any good to throw you five pillars or ten commandments or any amount of instruction or advice because you'll never get yourself out of the hole you've dug yourself into. The only way out is for someone to come from the outside, live for you, die for you, rise again for you. There is no more painful truth for the human heart to come to terms with than that. That's what Jesus says to us on the cross. But just like Jesus on the cross at the very same time, he communicates to us the love that we need to know, to internalize, to receive that truth. Because on the cross, what Jesus is also saying to every one of us is despite how flawed and broken and sinful we are, we are more loved than we dare imagine, more loved than we could believe, because despite all of that, Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to die for you. God the Father was willing to empty heaven of Jesus to fill it with you. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You ever ask yourself, what was it that Jesus did not have before the cross that he can only get through the cross? It's not the Father's love. Jesus had that in an eternity past. It's not the glory that was due his name. He, he forfeited all that according to Philippians 2 when he came down here. The only thing Jesus did not have before the cross that he can only get through the cross was you. And you were worth it to Jesus to go to the cross for. So the gospel message is hit, it, it is such this, it's a profound message. It's this off-the-charts message, and it's meant to create these paradoxical people known as Christians because the gospel, at the same time, it, 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 it confronts you with a truth that's meant to humble you into the dirt. You'll never look down on anybody else again, but at the same time, it's giving you a love that lifts you to the stars so you're beyond 
you're, you're beyond evaluation from others, from yourself, because you know that you have the infinite love of God. The point is, on the cross, Jesus is giving us what Paul says we most deeply need, which is this perfect communication of love and truth. And so when you understand that, you understand what it means to grow as a Christian is simply to have this truth of how loved you are despite how sinful you are in Jesus sink more deeply into your life until it transforms you and creates in you and, tr- and makes you the kind of person that can both give and receive the truth and love to the people around you. Let me call the worship team up. We're going to close with this. This is about as practical as I ever get up here. I'm going to give you two applications, and I'm convinced everybody falls into one of these camps. <clears throat> On the one hand, some of us listening to this have people in our lives And I'd ask you, we're done here, just please lean into this. Some of us have people in our lives that we have either withheld the truth from entirely or we've spoken the truth to them in a way that's harmful. And if we get real honest, we've done that primarily for self-centered motives. If that's where we're coming from, what God would say to us through this text is it's time for you to begin speaking the truth. You're not doing anybody any favors. It's a violation, it's a sin against them and it's a sin against God to withhold that. And in that, We need to make sure that we communicate the truth in love. We need to make sure that there's not a hint of bitterness, a hint of malice, a hint of condescension. We need to check our motives against the cross, but it's time to begin speaking the truth. However, for the rest of us, and maybe this is most of us, maybe this is most of us, our issue is not that that we need to speak into somebody else's life. It's that for maybe the first time in our lives, we need to start letting someone speak into ours. Now, maybe you come to a building once a week, Maybe you even go to a small group, but before you and God, if you got really honest, you know that you're isolated. You know that, that you have been very selective about how far people get to see into your life. You've kept people at an arm's length. You've communicated in either nonverbal or verbal ways that you're not interested in hearing what other people think of how you're living, what you're doing, or who, who you're becoming. And if, if any of that resonates with you, then what God would say to you through this passage is that as terrifying as it is, and it is, it's a terrifying thing to let another human being see into and speak into your life. As hard as that is, there is no other way to grow. There is no other way to become what God has called you to be. And so I'll leave you with this. What Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 leaves us with is that the only way we're going to become this paradoxical community that comes together to form the body of Jesus is if we allow Jesus, the word of God, full of grace and truth, to fill us with grace and truth, that we might go and do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's get to work. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the gift that your church is. I, I, that's never been more clear to me than it has in this trip through Ephesians. Um, we need our brothers and sisters. We need you, Father, first and foremost. We need to be saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, but there is simply no Christianity without the church. There's not a single example of it in your word. When you save us into a relationship with you, you save us into a relationship with other brothers and sisters in Jesus. We need each other so that together we can become something that none of us independently can be, the body, the physical embodiment of Jesus Christ in a world that desperately needs him. God, we have so much hurt. We have so much baggage. We have so many burdens. We have so much stuff that we're carrying around that we tend to project on other people. We need you to heal us. We need that word from outside of us to hit us with the, the truth that, that brings us to the dirt and that love that lifts us to the stars, to fill us with grace and truth so that we can give and receive that grace and truth to the people you've placed in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. God's people said, amen.